0: Our Bible study today is taken from Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, and it is the story of the Tower of Babel. Most of us have a little bit of familiarity with this story. It's one of those well-known stories in the Old Testament that is interesting, enigmatic, and probably many of us encountered it first when we were children. So, But it's worth looking at with a deeper lens and uh, with an attempt to try to perceive and really understand what's going on and try to make a little bit of application so with that in mind i'd like to invite you to join me we're going to open up as our and look at the primary text before we go any further so open up your bible to genesis chapter number 11 genesis chapter 11 and let's start by reading verses one through nine. I would really like everyone to join me in this reading, and if you would, in honor of the word of God, would you please join me by standing, and we'll read these nine verses together in unison as a congregation out of our King James Bible. We're gonna read Genesis 11, verses one through nine in unison as our primary text. Let's begin. And the whole earth was of one language, and of one speech. And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick, and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, and slime had they for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower, whose top may reach into heaven and let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language, and this they begin to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them, which they have imagined to do. Go to, go down there confound their language. They may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did confound the language of all the earth. And from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. Thank you. You may be seated. many bible stories we fail to do something and that's put it in the proper historic context of the time often we jump into a story and we look at it as if it existed in a vacuum and 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 often that leads us to begin with faulty premises as we attempt to derive meaning and information from the story so We want very much to not make that error in in our understanding in in the exegesis of Scripture. And so the first thing we've got to do to get the hermeneutics right is to really get the proper sense of the immediate context. And the immediate prior context is very important, so I've got to take a few minutes and discuss that. So the first question we have to examine is this. What was the immediate prior context? And of course, the immediate prior context is found in the chapters that precede this. Not as much chapter 10. Now, chapter 10 is simply a genealogical table. And there's a gem or two in chapter 10 that is of value to us as we seek to understand chapter 11. But really, it's chapters 6 and 7 and 8 and 9 of Genesis. Now, chapters 6 through 9 of Genesis tell us about Noah's flood and the immediate aftermath of the flood. So I have two or three important points we've got to get on the table here about understanding Noah's flood properly. Item number one, Noah's flood was global. Two representatives of all breathing creatures entered the ark, and they alone survived. Now, to understand the nature of this flood, we have to recognize these two things. First of all, the flood was global. Now, right there, there are going to be many people who may listen to this and say, gee, I think you've already made a mistake. Well, I don't think so, <laughs> in my opinion. I've, really, I've been studying the flood most of my adult life. It's a very enjoyable topic, and there's many different aspects to it, but I'm, I've become convinced more and more and more that the flood of Noah was global than what I'm trying to articulate here, I'm correct on. So, as we think about Noah's flood for just a few moments, to get the context for the Tower of Babel, there are many folks who will raise what appear to be very sensible objections to a worldwide global flood. Now, there are answers to every one of those sensible objections, and I don't have time to go through them now. But, speaking broadly, Let's make sure we get our understanding correct. Some of the the objections are based out of just reason and logic. Now, reason and logic is good. But reason and logic does not trump, does not overwhelm, or does not overcome the plain words of Scripture. Number two, many people object to the global flood for various and sundry scientific reasons or archaeological reasons. And I've spent a lot of time exploring all kinds of scientific aspects of Noah's Flood, everything from the dating systems. I'm familiar with carbon-14 and potassium-argon dating and all of these sundry dating systems. I'm familiar with all of the scientific arguments that say, well, gee, I don't really think it could be global. And there's an answer for every one of those. But as much as science is a worthy area of knowledge, science does not trump Scripture, And the reason it doesn't is because so many scientists, and we've seen this very recently, so many scientists are not entering their field open-minded. And the same is really true for archaeologists. They don't enter the field of study and inquiry open-minded. They enter the field with the idea that the Bible is baloney. And if I have a chance to prove that, I would love to do so. And so they're rather eager to do so. They're eager to do so. I might remind you that until about the late 1700s, every good mind in Western Christianity believed the flood was global and worldwide. Every single one. So if you argue like me that it was global or worldwide, you're standing with a lot of very intelligent men. You're standing with the monks, John Calvin and Martin Luther and Augustine of Hippo and a large number of really sharp fellows who took the word of God at face value. So on that point, let me just mention this now. In terms of it being a worldwide flood, look at a couple of verses about plain language. If you were going to describe a flood that was worldwide, you would probably want to use language a lot like what we see. So look at Genesis 6, verse 19. Genesis 6, excuse me, verse 17. Genesis 6, verse 17 reads, Behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth... Now a lot of people will struggle with the word earth and say, "Oh, that's just a country or region or a continent. It's not the whole world." Well, the word earth goes back to Genesis chapter one, and that in that case, it was the whole world. <laughs> all right. At any rate, we don't need to get bogged down there. And then it says, "To destroy all flesh wherein is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that was under heaven—that is the skies—and everything that is in the earth shall die." And we could keep going. Genesis 7, verse 19, it says, The waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth, and all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. And verse 22, In whose nostrils was the breath of life, and all that was in the dry land died. Now, that's plain language. It shouldn't be taken allegorically, metaphorically, or twisted about. It's simply plain language. The Genesis is primarily a book of history. It is a historical record. We need to look at it in, in its plain speech. It's not like Revelation filled with possible allegories. It's not like some of the prophets who are filled with all kinds of parables and allegories. It is plain language. It is primarily a book of history, the book of Genesis. Now, with respect to all breathing creatures entering the ark, there are many objections to that. And I'm going to say that all of the races were on the ark. And there's objections to that. But let me read the plain language, Genesis 6, 19, it says, Of every living thing of all flesh, two and two of every sort, shalt thou bring into the ark. Everything that has breath of all flesh, Genesis 17, sorry, excuse me, 7, verse 15 and 16. And they went in unto Noah into the ark, two and two of all flesh, wherein is the breath of life. And they that went in, went in male and female of all flesh. The other races are flesh. They breathe. What does the Bible say? All flesh. All that breathe. And we could, this is repeated in Genesis 9, verse 15. You can read that about God destroying all flesh. Now, another point. In terms of covenantal history, God's primary concern was the race of Adam. All right. In terms of covenantal history, in looking at the book of Genesis, really it's about Adam primarily. Now, it does involve other factors and other people and other issues as they affect Adam and his dominion of the earth. So we find in Genesis 6.18, 6, it says, With thee will I establish my covenant. He's speaking to Noah. And thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons. So the covenant is with Noah and with his sons. Many people struggle with 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20, which tells us that there were eight souls that were in the ark. Eight souls were saved by water is what it says, 1 Peter 3:20. Eight souls saved by water. Well, that is very reminiscent of Genesis 2, verse 7, which states that God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. That is speaking of Adam, Adam-man you say, well, what are you talking about with all this business about a soul? And you're saying the other races don't have souls. I'm just saying they don't have the soul like Adam. They don't have a soul like Adam. No one has a soul like Adam except Adam and Adam kind. Of course, the other races have some sort of a soul, but it's not a soul like Adam. It's not a covenantal relationship. and It's of a different sort. It's a different type of, of living, different type of um, life form, different kind. Now, our next point, and this we need to pause on. I want you to look at, on the chart, on the outline, this is uh, Roman numeral number 1, A2. All right, let me look at that sentence. It says, I've written down for you, the tremendous upheaval of the flood created, em, created emotional shockwaves that lasted for generations. I want you to think about what you can visualize the terror and the destruction of Noah's global flood, and how that would affect not only the people that were on the boat, on the ark, on this great ship, but also the people that were born after them, and born after them, and born after them, and born after them for multiple generations. And you say, well, how could that be? How could someone born five generations later? have an emotional baggage about something that they never experienced. Well, let me ask you this question. How is it that many people from the American South are still angry about the American Civil War that ended five generations ago? Amen. <laughs> it is a reality that generational traditions, memories, and transmitted values carry on. And it's very easy for me to imagine, and I hope you can too, how the great-great-grandson of Shem, remember Shem lived a long, long time. So suppose the great-great-grandson comes to him and says, hey, great-great-grandpa, tell me once again about that story where you thought the ark was going to be capsized in the middle of the flood. Tell me once again what it was like when you saw this or that that terrified you while you were on the ark. Tell me again that story about when you got off the ark, and all the living creatures got off the ark with you, and the world was utterly and entirely different than what it looked like before. Well, that sort of thing is very easy to imagine, how that this created emotional shockwaves. Now, let's, look, let's consider now, and I'm trying to move quickly, but this is important. Consider God's instructions in this new world, this harsh, ravaged new world. We've got to look at God's instructions in chapter number 9, so we'll briefly touch on this. Consider God's instructions in this new, harsh, ravaged world. A new world There's a new world after the flood. Number 1, we find in Genesis 9, 1, and 7, Noah and his sons were instructed to be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth. The word replenish means to fill, not refill. But, and then it's repeated in verse 7. Be fruitful, multiply, bring forth abundantly. Now, why would that be? Well, the earth was empty. The earth was essentially empty, and they were to multiply. Now, that reads almost identical to Genesis 1.28. They had to fill the earth because it was largely empty of the Adam life forms, Adam kind life, all of the, the people of Adam. Number two, in Genesis 9, verses 2 through 6, we see something unusual. We see two, at least two new things that, are, that, that, that we can summarize in this way. Further instructions. Essentially, it goes like this. You should govern firmly, for the new world is a pitiless environment, and there will be stiff competition for scarce resources. What does it mean, govern firmly? Why would I say that? It's because this is the institution of capital punishment. If someone kills, you must kill them. If someone murders, they must be put to death. And secondly, this is the green light, the go-ahead, and the encouragement to eat meat, to eat living flesh, slaughter animals and eat them. Now this tells us two things. It tells us that the earth is a tough new environment. It is a harsh world. It has changed dramatically. Consider this. Prior to the fall in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve had a beautiful world that was sin-free and bountiful. After they left the Garden of Eden, you no longer had a sin-free world, but you still had a very bountiful world. Bountiful. Plentiful. But after the flood... We have another new world. Now this world is neither sin-free, nor is it bountiful. Nor is it a world filled with lush growth and green and just just easy to find what you need, or relatively easy. Now it's a harsh world. It's going to be filled with vast deserts. It's going to have polar areas. It's going to be a world of extraordinary extreme climate problems. It's going to be hard to make a living. It's going to be hard to feed yourself. And there's going to be tough, stiff competition to stay alive. and So you must enforce those who would murder and kill and steal from others. You can't be putting up with that. And you now have a green light to eat flesh. Because you're going to need to eat meat. It's going to be hard to find enough to eat. Now third, his third bit of instruction. We find at the last verse of Genesis chapter 10. Divide and scatter yourselves. As you grow in numbers, you need to divide yourselves up, scatter yourselves out. Genesis 10, verse 32. These are the families of the sons of Noah after their generations in their nations. And by these were the nations divided in the earth after the flood. They were meant to divide up as they grew in numbers and scatter apart. Because it was a difficult world, a harsh world, a tough world. Hard, difficult, pitiless environment. To get along with each other, you needed to spread out, spread out a lot. Now, this is repeated in Deuteronomy 32.8. In that passage, you can read it on your own time. We find that Moses was recounting, he was recounting many things that happened before his time. And in that, he mentions God's instructions about dividing themselves up, and the nations as they as they grew up in tribes, and then nations they were meant to spread out, spread out, scatter yourselves about. Now, so this is the immediate prior context of Noah. Excuse me, of the Tower of Babel. Now we're ready for Genesis chapter eleven. What are the preliminary facts we can observe about the Tower of Babel and its builders? Well, let's just run through a few basic facts about the Tower of Babel that we can glean from the Word of God. Number one, in Genesis 9-11, God promised that there would never be another flood. Our first point is this, they did not believe God. They did not believe God that there would be another flood. They did not believe God that that there would not be another flood like there was. They were skeptical of that promise. Their thinking was more like, well, if it happened once, maybe it might happen again. We'd better be ready. Now, we can perceive this from the close reading of the context of what we've got here and a couple of other sources. Now, what was the purpose of the Tower of Babel? Let's move along quickly and we'll perceive what's going on here a little bit. The purpose, at least one of the primary purposes of the Tower of Babel was to survive any future flood. Now we read in Genesis eleven four, 4, it reads that, Go to, let us build a city and a tower, whose top may reach unto heaven. Let us make a name, lest we be scattered abroad. So one purpose was to dis- of the tower of Babel was to survive a possible future flood, because they did not believe God that there might not be another one. Now, one of the interesting sources of secondary information, not equal to scripture, but of great interest, is the historian Josephus, the first century Hebrew historian who wrote a history of the entire Israelite people, beginning with Genesis chapter 1, I mean, beginning with creation. And he tells us a few things about the story of the Tower of Babel. One of the things, according to Josephus, is the couple, the first several generations after Noah's global flood, as they began to grow, slowly multiply, they did not, the people that survived the flood and got off the ark for several generations, they did not want to leave the mountains. They stayed in the mountains. They did not want to go down and live in the flatlands, in the lowlands. They remained in the mountains because they were afla- afraid that there might be another flood, and they said, we're going to stay up here in the highland areas where we have a fighting chance to survive any future flood. <laughs> hey, I'm not, to, I'm not going to chance it. You go down there and live in those low, flat areas. I'm staying up here in the highlands. Secondly, we have a, an interesting description of this tower in verse 3, worthy of a little reflection if you read closely. Genesis 11.3 tells us what the Tower of Babel was made of. Look at it. It says, They said one to another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And the brick they had for stone and slime they had for mortar. Now you might read through that and you say, Well, what's the significance of that? Okay, so they made it out of brick and mortar. What else were they going to make it out of? Well, there actually were a lot of things they were building out of. Brick and mortar, believe it or not, as this is described was actually the the high technology at that early age. For example, much of the the building structures were made prior to this time and and throughout much of the Old Testament was not brick that had been burned and turned burned in a kiln and burned thoroughly. Now we're used to brick that is hard, that has been made in a kiln, and it's hard, tough stuff. It's like a rock, isn't it? It's essentially an artificial rock, maybe a little more brittle, but it's a hard, stiff rock. Yes, if it gets wet, what happens to it? Nothing. Soak in water all you want, nothing. But that's not how they built it throughout much of the Old Testament era. You might recall the children of Israel when they were slaves in Egypt. They had brick made with straw. You remember that? That's very much like what you and I would call, in the American Southwest, adobe. Now, that's a pretty good building material if you live in, you know, New Mexico desert. Not such a great building material if you live in a wet place like, say, uh, you know, the coast of Virginia. Because what happens to adobe when when that gets soaking wet? It melts away. It melts away. They gradually soak that in water and you're in trouble. So when we read 11.3 and it tells us they built it out of brick and it, they made it and they burned it thoroughly, this was essentially new, more or less new technology and they were building something really solid, really secure that they were proud of that could withstand water. It could withstand floods. So verse 3 isn't just a casual passing reference. It's another clue. The tower was stoutly built to withstand another flood. And many people speculate about the dimensions of the tower, how tall was the tower, what's it mean whose top reaches up to heaven, all sorts of things are speculative in this area. And I don't have a lot of answers in that respect, so I don't want to go down that road. But we can say this for sure. This tower was very stoutly built out of some of the highest, newest technologies of that era, It was meant to withstand uh, all kinds of of calamities, particularly a watery calamity like a flood. And it was very, very tall, exceptionally tall for a reason that we can only speculate. But surely it has something to do with this, this, this generational fixation with this global catastrophe called Noah's flood. Now, secondary... A second purpose was to avoid the scattering. You see, Babel, it tells us in verse 4 of Genesis 11, was also a city. It was a city and a tower. Let's not overlook the this urban center, this urban development. So it was a city. We'll come back to that business about it being a city. Next, according to Josephus, the leader... Of all the builders was a gentleman named Nimrod. Now, we need to pause for a little bit about Nimrod. Now, there's much that people talk about regarding Nimrod, which I'm not going to go into about, uh, you know, Christmas trees or, you know, any of that stuff. All right, that takes us off a sidetrack. But what do we know about Nimrod? Well, Josephus tells us that Nimrod was was the leader of the builders and we get that from Genesis chapter 8, excuse me, chapter 10, verses 8 through 10. Go back a page or two, look at Genesis 10. Let's read about Nimrod in verses 8 through 10. It tells us Cush begat Nimrod. Okay, Cush was the son of Ham. So Nimrod now would be the grandson of Ham, and I presume the great-grandson of Noah if I'm reading this right. Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, Kalna, in the land of Shinar. As far as I know, there are no real scholars that disagree with Josephus's claim that Nimrod was the leader of the builders at the Tower of Babel. It makes a lot of sense biblically. Now, one of the things we need to note, though, about Nimrod that we can safely conclude when we look up these words and we kind of study them out a little bit and we find and we see the word hunter. Now, the word hunter is a little misleading because when I think of the word hunter, when you think of the word hunter, we primarily think, well, okay, so he's good at going out in the woods and shooting a deer with his bow and arrow or whatever. We maybe think of Esau, you know, Esau was a mighty hunter and he went out and he shot the deer and he brought it to his father and so forth. That's a little misleading. First of all, remember Esau, as we just track out his life, in addition to being good at killing deer, we discover he was a man of war. And he was probably pretty good at killing men. In fact, he was exceptionally good at killing men from what we can glean. Enough so that Jacob was very much afraid of Esau, this hunter who could kill deer. He could also kill men. And that's one reason why Jacob ran away. (laughs) But back to Nimrod, When it says he was a hunter the word hunter, as we use it in modern English, is a little bit has a different connotation than then. The word hunter has, used to have a warlike connotation. And that warlike connotation of the word hunter is actually preserved in a few other languages that use the word hunter. You might remember a little tidbit about American history. In the American Revolution, old King George III needed help for his soldiers, didn't he? The Redcoats. He hired some Hessians. The Hessians came over. Their uniforms were primarily green, and they had a nickname. They were called Jaegers, which means hunter. They were hunters. They were hunter killers. In World War II, in Germany, they had developed a plane called, we call it a kind of a a attack bomber or a dive bomber. They called it a Jaeger, a hunter. It was a hunter bomber. It was a destructive thing. It wasn't meant for killing deer. This is meant for killing men. And the Hessians weren't there to go hunting in the woods of North America. They were there to kill Americans. And they were greatly feared in Europe. My point is, the word hunter misleads us a little bit. So let's get this idea of who Nimrod is. He was a mighty hunter, but that has a military connotation. And first, furthermore, the word mighty. The word mighty in Hebrew has a strong connotation toward tyranny. Tyrannical. So it would be appropriate to to read it in some way, to say something like, Nimrod was a tyrannical, mighty military man who was good at killing. Something of this nature. So their leader, Nimrod, was essentially what we could call tyrant. He was a tyrant. And there's another clue that tells us a little bit about Nimrod being a tyrant and his tyranny. All right, so what do these facts mean so far? If we try to assign a little bit of meaning to what we've got. All right, so we've got a a tower that has been built because they did not believe that there would never never be another flood. The purpose was to survive the flood. The tower was built to withstand water and watery disasters. They had a city that was named the same. It was a a stoutly strong-built city. They came down to live in the plain. Remember now, they're living in a plain, the plain of Shinar. All right? They had a powerful, aggressive, militaristic, tyrannical leader named Nimrod, who left a great imprint in this ancient world. So what do these facts mean? All right, the first one. I believe the builders of the tower wanted to be judgment-proofed. They wanted to be judgment-proof apart from God. They wanted to be judgment-proofed apart from God. What do I mean by that? They didn't want, they didn't want God to send another judgment that would destroy or damage them. They wanted, they wanted to be independent of God. They wanted to be able to be independent of God. They didn't want to have to kowtow to God. They didn't want to have to recognize god they didn't want to be dependent upon god they didn't want to acknowledge god they were angry at god they were angry at the judgment he had brought upon the earth they were angry that they didn't live in a lush easy world anymore they were angry that he had destroyed that previous beautiful world They thought that was unfair, unjust, unreasonable, and they were angry, and they'd been angry for generations, and they were going to survive and prosper apart from God and apart from God's ways. They wanted to judgment-proof their lives, and we can do it by working together, by being smart, by developing new technologies, new building techniques, new ways of living. We can be judgment proof from God and live apart from his instructions. Second, they wanted security in a harsh world. They wanted security in a harsh world apart again apart from God. And so it tells us in 11 chapter 11 verse 2 it says when they journeyed from the east it says they found a plain in the land of Shinar. Now it really is not a mystery where the land of Shinar is. We know it today. There really seems to be no dispute among Bible historians and Bible geographers where this place and region was. Where was or where is the land of Shinar? It's still there today. The land of Shinar is this large, flat plain, where two rivers flow through, the Euphrates and the Tigris. It's a vast plain. It turned out that that vast flat plain, having these two large rivers running through it, turns out it's actually very, very fertile. Very fertile. Today, it's in the land of Iraq. In those days, there was no Islamic religion, there was no city of Baghdad, but there was a large, fertile plain that had excellent topsoil, wonderful soil, that had two large rivers flowing through it, It was dry. Yes, apparently it was dry. But what they did, it turns out that Shinar, going back to ancient times, and again, this is just a fact of historic record. This is not really debatable. Going way, way, way back to ancient times, 2000 B.C., maybe even further, way back, this was always a fertile irrigated plain. Irrigated. In fact, Shinar was the world's first irrigated plain. It was the first breadbasket of the world. Now, some of you, if you watch the news, you maybe have heard people say something like this about this war over there in Eastern Europe. They say something like, Ukraine is the breadbasket of Europe. Well, that's true, it's been true for 500 years. Ukraine is a fertile place that produces a great abundant, wonderful, you know, great source of food. Or maybe you've heard something like this, the Great Plains of the United States is the breadbasket of North America. Well, the first breadbasket in the world was the land of Shinar. And that's a matter of historic record. Wonderful topsoil. All you had to do was irrigate out of the rivers, and the land brought forth abundance. And, of course, historians will tell us these are some of the places where some of the first great ancient civilizations occurred. It's where Abraham came from. Ur, in the land of Chaldees. Nineveh. Babylon. Babylon. Some of the great ancient cities of the world came from the land of Shinar. And the first people to irrigate and to develop this breadbasket was right here in Genesis chapter 11. The people who built Babel, the tower and the city, they brought forth this abundant place. So what's going on here? So what, what was this all about? So let's go a little further. I'm, I'm on the other side of the outline if you're bothering to follow along. Essentially this, by remaining clustered in a strong city with secure food resources and a tower so great that it reached to heaven, they could survive God's judgment and live as they pleased. You see, their their goal was to be judgment-proof, independent of God, non-dependent of God. So they had a strong city, they, they had developed the, 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 the irrigation systems and they had, they had now these secure food sources, they had a tower so great that, that they were building that would reach up to heaven. They had finally come down from the mountains. Nimrod had persuaded them, come down from the mountains into this fertile valley, let's work and build together. Build our canals, build our city, build our city walls, build a great tower. We'll be secure. We will be secure from the judgments of God. We'll be able to live as we please. We won't have to acknowledge God in any way. And that's why it tells us in Genesis 11, verse 6, how God got angry with them. He says in verse 6, The Lord said, after coming down and having a look. No, I don't know what that means when it says the Lord came down to have a look. I'm not here to say how he appeared or in what form he appeared. or I don't know anything about that. I I don't really have any clear thoughts about that. We'll have to just leave that up. But that's what the Bible says. In some form or fashion, God had a close look at these people. And his conclusion, God's conclusion, verse 6 says, Behold, the people is one. They all have one language, and this they will begin to do. Now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. What does that mean, nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do? It means that they had an attitude that says, We will live as we please regardless of God's instructions or God's commandments or God's way, or anything to do with God. After all, God was cruel, unkind, unjust, and unmerciful in destroying this earth. That was, what kind of a horrible God would do that? What kind of a horrible God would would judge the entire earth, just for the sins of, you know, a few people here or over there, whatever, whatever, whatever. Their idea was, we will be independent. We will do what we want, and let's see if he can judge us now. Let's see if he can destroy us now. We've got our food sources, we've got a city, we've got our walls, we've got a tower we're going to soon have complete. It's going to reach all the way to heaven. This is a waterproof tower. There's no floods that's going to destroy this tower. It's thick, it's wide, it's strong. It won't. The water won't wash this tower away. It's got deep foundations, it's got everything. We are independent from God. We'll live like we want. We will do what we want, when we want, how we want. And we don't care what God says. And God saw that. He says, they need my attention. These people, these people need, need my attention again. So, he was not pleased in the direction they were going. Now, there is one other point that's worthy of mentioning here. It's kind of important. To achieve all of this, the people had to accept something in exchange. To achieve this, they had to accept a new yoke of authority, Nimrod the tyrant. Nimrod, this mighty man, this this man of tyrannical ambitions. And that's why it tells us in Genesis 6, excuse me, Genesis 11, verse 6, When it says, the first thing that God said in verse 6, after he evaluated them, his first conclusion is this, Behold, the people is one. They didn't have a diversity of opinion. They didn't have multiple political parties. They didn't have multiple ways of looking at the situation, really. The people is one. How are the people one? Because there was only one man whose opinion in the end mattered. One man's opinion mattered. And that was Nimrod's opinion. And that opinion was imposed on everyone. And everyone said, okay, you've got a plan. We'll, we'll, we'll go with your plan. We'll accept you. We'll accept you as our great leader. Now, uh, let's quickly go to item four. What can we observe about God's judgment upon the people at the Tower of Babel? Well, as it tells us, quite famously, in verse 7, he confounded their language. He confused their ability to communicate. He confused their ability to communicate. Now, it doesn't tell us how he confused their ability to communicate. You know, we're just speculating about how God accomplished this. But one of the things that I think is interesting... It appears to be, to me, as a, a miracle that is opposite of the day of Pentecost. Yeah. Yeah. Now, on the day of Pentecost, you'll recall, if we could take a few few minutes, we won't take time, but you could look it up in Acts chapter 2 and read verses 6 through 8 and, and surrounding passages. There was a miracle on the day of Pentecost when the church was beginning. And that was, there were multiple languages of various Israelites, various Hebrews scattered around through this room, who came from all over the Middle East, and they'd all gathered in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. They were speaking different languages, and miraculously, they could understand one another. This was just the opposite. This was the opposite. They had been one language, and miraculously, the one language that was being spoken was being heard in multiple different ways. And they were confused and confounded. And the lack of communication caused the entire project to fall apart. Then it follows up in verse 8 and 9. God forced their scattering. He forced them to scatter. This, This particular action was meant to force one of the things they didn't want to do. They did not want to spread out. They did not want to scatter. It says, it, earlier on, it tells us, hey, we've got to make a name for ourselves lest we be scattered. We don't want to spread out and disperse and scatter like God told us. So God had to impose that particular command upon them by confusing them in such a way that they couldn't communicate and they couldn't get along. And so they, they finally, they did what they were supposed to. Well, I'm going this way. See you later. I'm going this way and they began to disperse and scatter and fulfill the original command of God that they didn't want to do. They didn't want to scatter. They didn't want to disperse. God compelled them to do so. And of course, as we well know, in verse 8, it says they left off to build the city. And I think we can presume they left off to build the tower. The city and the tower were unfinished. The project was unfolding. Apparently they were pleased with their progress. They were growing confident. Maybe they were near completion. We do not know. But the project was not finished. It remained unfinished. And indeed today, as far as I know, there have been lots of archaeologists and people poking around the plain of Shinar. As far as I know, it has not been found. We don't know where it was. There's been a little speculation new theories, but uh, nothing really you can sink your teeth into and say from a historic or archaeological point of view that, yeah, we got it. We, we know exactly where it was. Maybe, it'll, maybe it will be found. I don't know. Now, let's go a little further, though. And <clears throat> what lessons from history can we regard, observe regarding the story? What should we learn? Because this is a big historic event. Is there anything that we see on the stage of history and, and, and the, the world as it unfolded over the centuries. Well, first of all this. One world government is a repeated ambition. This essentially was the first effort at a one world government, a concentrated, centralized government in which all the people would be all of one mind. They will be as one. So a one world government is a repeated ambition. There are a number of people... In history who attempted this I've written down there Alexander Napoleon communism modern communism there are others we could look at another question though why is it the people follow any modern Nimrods if we say hey Alexander the Great was kind of like a modern Nimrod and he kind of was and Napoleon, he might have started with a lot of patriotic zeal, but by midway in his career, he became essentially kind of a modern Nimrod. And, you know, communists, uh, Joseph Stalin, whoever you might like to choose out of world history. Why, would, why do people follow modern Nimrods? If there's any modern Nimrods in the great men walking the earth today, why do people follow them? What is the motive? What do they have to gain? Well, there's two things that I see, and I've really touched on them already. Here's what they offer you. Number one, they offer you security in a harsh world apart from God. The world's a tough place. It's always been a tough place. We live in a little slice of history in which we're insulated for some of the worst realities of world history. Most of us have never really known famines, horrific wars... Plagues, real plagues, not fake plagues. Real plagues. We're somewhat insulated from all of these harsh things. Modern Nimrods, like ancient Nimrods, they offer you security from the harsh, tough realities of a difficult world. Number two, the second appeal is this. They will offer a judgment-proof society. A judgment-proof society that allows you to more or less live as you please. You may live as you please. You can more or less do what you want in your personal and private life. Now, I don't have time to explore this, but it'd be a pretty interesting study, and maybe someday I'll do this, to explore the connection between the Tower of Babel and Mystery Babylon the Great that's at the end of Revelation, Amen. the beginning and the end. I think there's a real strong connection. Amen. It's a real strong connection. Now, Mystery Babylon the Great, it's not a coincidence that Babel and Babylon are very similar words. Not a coincidence. Now, it describes Mystery Babylon the Great as the mother of harlots. The mother of harlots. In a sense, the Tower of Babel was that mother, was that beginning source, that first moment, that first time in history that we have these attitudes that reach their great culmination at the end of the age with Mystery Babylon the Great The mother of harlots, this harlot here, there's a connection, but it reaches that culmination of being utterly independent from God. Now, the mother of harlots, if you read Revelation 17, I'd like you sometime in your own time, maybe this afternoon, read the first six verses. Look at all of the words that you find in those first six verses that have something to do with immorality. You'll run across the word fornication several times, harlot several times, a number of other words that sound like we're talking about m- moral stuff here. Now, why is that? It's because one of the great promises, one of the things that, these, that, 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 that is always offered, the modern Nimrods always offer this, a morally permissive society. A morally permissive society goes to, really, one of the core motives of the human race, which I'm a little uncomfortable talking about, and you're probably a little uncomfortable hearing about, but it has to do with sexuality. It's just one of the great drives in the human race. And God intends us to live to constrain, constrain that the modern Nimrods, like the ancient Nimrods, say you can do what you want. You close your door and do what you want. Whatever you want in terms of morality and sexuality. It's always, they're always morally permissive societies. Alexander's great society that lasted for a short time. Alexander the Great was a very morally permissive society. Revolutionary France under Napoleon was very morally permissive. Communism in our time, it's morally permissive. Now you do have to acknowledge the great leader, the great tyrant. You got to do what he says, but he's going to give you a lot of liberty when you close the door. You do what you want. You live the way you want. It is a morally permissive society. It's one of the great... The great, the, the, it's one of these promises they give you. It's the bait. It's the bait. They, they, they lure you with this. Follow me, this is what you're going to get. You're going to get security in a harsh world. You're going to be judgment-proofed from God, or maybe anybody else who says, ah uh ah, you shouldn't be doing that. You're going to be judgment-proofed. We're going to give you that cover. And you can close your door and live the way you want that's the bait of course the hook there is a hook in exchange all you have to do is give up a few small liberties just give up a few small liberties and you'll get all this in exchange now in terms of practical application Regarding this story, there's a few things we can draw from it that may be immediately applicational to your life or mine as we think about human nature. We think about people living then and people living now because we haven't really changed much. Maybe we haven't really changed at all. Those people that went down to the plain of Shinar, they're not all that much different from you and me and all our friends and neighbors and the world we live in. So what could we conclude on a more personal level? Well, this first one, those who seek to make a name usually end up with a bad name. If you seek to make a name for yourself, chances are you will, but it'll be a bad one. Because that's what happened to them. They wanted to make a name so they wouldn't be forgotten, so they'd be remembered, so they would have a reputation that was grand and glorious and powerful. Well, the word babble is really a very negative name for good reason. Anybody who reads the Bible understands that Babel is a, that's a pretty bad. That, that, you don't want to be connected or associated with that. So you're gonna get a bad name. You want to make a name for yourself? You better be careful about that. You're gonna get a reputation. It'll probably be a bad one when you're all done. Item two, God's judgments in our lives. They usually push us toward our original God-ordained tasks. One of the God-ordained tasks that those people were commanded to do was to disperse, scatter, and fill the earth, and they didn't want to. But God made them. The judgment upon Babel compelled them to do that which they were uninclined, disinclined to do. He compelled them to do it. So, you might think, well, what is my God-ordained task? And you say, well, gee, I don't really know. Well, maybe you'll find out. Or you might say to yourself, I think I know, but I don't really want to do it. You can expect that God will bring judgments in your life that will push you and prompt you and compel you, that will wedge you down that pathway where he wants you to go. So, if you know what God's plan for your life is, if you know what God has told you to do, You might as well just get on busy doing it and and be paying attention to how He's going to direct you and listen and pay attention and stop running away because I believe God's judgments are designed to push us in the direction He originally commanded us to go. Third one. This seems pretty obvious to me. We should always humbly accept our dependence upon God. We should always be dependent on God. We should never... Think I'm gonna judgment-proof my life You don't want to have an attitude. I'm gonna judgment-proof my life to such a degree So if there's judgments if God brings judgments, I don't need him Because I've got this I've got this I've got this I've I've thought it all through and I am independent and I, I, I can survive the judgments that might come without God, because I'm putting my reliance in these things, in these forethought, this this preparation and forethought that I've gone, that I've you better watch out. That's a very, very slippery slope you're on in developing an independent spirit from God. Human nature is very clever. We fool ourselves all the time, in which we tell ourselves, I'm really doing this just to be a wise man. I'm really doing this just to be uh, good steward, I'm doing this to be, uh, but we're really, we are wanting to do it because we have an independent spirit. Right. And we really are a little bit, I don't really want to be dependent upon God for my daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. Do you really want to be dependent on God every day? Well, you ought to be. Amen. You ought to have that motive. You ought to be submissive, and soft toward our Father in heaven. So that you're always somewhat dependent. It doesn't mean be foolish and don't think ahead, don't plan ahead. I'm not arguing that. I'm saying, but be careful. Be careful that an independent spirit doesn't creep into your life. Next, geographical separation reduces the human tendency to abuse power. God told, told them to separate. And there, there, there's actually a lot to be said in this, but, but in terms... I, I, there's, there's a lot to be said in the realm of civil government that, that, that can be argued in favor of this business of separation of power, geographical separation, to limit the abuse of power, And to limit and trim back the Nimrods who are eager to accrue power for themselves. Now, until Jesus Christ returns, all nations will never be united. All nations will never be united. Now, you don't need to worry about this. Plenty of people are worrying about it for you. They don't need to worry as much as they think they do. I'd like to throw out one more passage. Psalm chapter 2. Well, let's finish the point. On the outline, I'm down to point E near the end. Until Jesus Christ returns, all nations will never be united. There will always be an us and them. Always going to be an us and them. But this is better than the alternative of tyranny. There's always going to be an us and them. It's perfectly natural. It's normal. To some degree, It's healthy. But this is better than the alternative tyranny. Now, in terms of uniting all the nations and the plots and schemes of the great nimrods of our time who say, well, we can unite the world in one great grand political scheme. Let me read from the book of Psalm chapter 2. It says, The kings of the earth set themselves together, and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, this is what the kings of the earth say. They say to themselves, let us break the, their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. Hey, I'm going to break the bands of God. I'm going to cast away the cords of God through the restraints of God. All the commandments and restraints that God has put upon me as a king or a great man or a mighty man. We're going we're to take counsel together, we mighty men. And we will be independent from God and we will unite together and together we will be independent of God and you know what God says in verse 3 of Psalm 2 Psalm 2 verse 3 God says this he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh the Lord shall have them in derision Ha! are you kidding me you guys are so pathetic you think you can escape me you think you can throw off the cords and the bands, the restraints that I have placed upon you and upon all man? What fools you are, God says. And goes on to talk about how in his wrath and displeasure, they will yield to God. And that takes us to our final point. Christ alone will unify all the nations of the world at his second coming. Yes, there will be a one-world government, but it'll be the one-world government of Jesus Christ, Amen. Jesus Christ the King. There will be a one-world government, and not everybody's going to be pleased with it, but that doesn't matter. Amen. And you can read about it in Matthew 25, 1 Corinthians 15, Revelation 19. All of them describe the second coming of Jesus and His unification of all the world, every last bit of it under His authority as King of kings, and Lord of Lords. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for your time this morning. May God bless you.